It is Wednesday, January 24th, 2018, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, we speak with Seattle philanthropist and serial entrepreneur Nick Hanauer about his philosophy on income inequality in America. You cannot both believe in capitalism and also simultaneously believe that the whole system will crumble if capitalists are required to pay people enough to live. Then we will hear from some voices at this year's Women's March 2.0 in Seattle. All that plus our weekly dose of good news. My guest, Nick Hanauer, is a Seattle-based serial entrepreneur and philanthropist who has founded and funded more than 30 companies. Most prominently, he founded the internet advertising company Aquantive, which was sold to Microsoft in 2007 for $6.4 billion. He also helped to underwrite the company that turned out to be Amazon.com. In 2014, Nick wrote Politico's most widely shared article ever, The Pitchforks Are Coming for Us Plutocrats, and along with Eric Liu, Nick authored the book The Gardens of Democracy, which helped inform the economic policy of the Obama administration. Nick Hanara, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Nice to, nice to be here. So I, I want to start by framing the problem that you addressed in that Politico article uh, and also in your TED Talk, um, which is that wealth inequality in this country is getting to the point where the middle class um, is potentially going to be wiped out. And as a member of what you call the 0.01%, why were you compelled to speak out about this? Uh, so I had a clarifying moment, uh, 10, I must have been around 10 years ago where, when I saw 2007, I suppose, when I, uh, I got a look at the IRS tax tables and income shares. And what you found was that in 1980, the top 1% of Americans shared about 8.5% of national income. And the bottom 50% of Americans shared about 18% of national income. But by 2007, uh, the top 1% of Americans had gone from their 8% share to about a 23% share, uh, while the bottom 50% of Americans had fallen from 18-ish to about 12. And it did, does not take a math genius to simply look at that trend and extrapolate out another 30 years beyond that from the Reagan revolution in 1980 to today, essentially, and then out another 30 years. And and what, what of course, you see is that if that trend continues, you know, the top 1% is going to have 35 or 40% of national income and the bottom 12, uh, 50% of uh, Americans are going to share uh, not 12, but six. And and it's very clear that at that point you don't you you have neither uh, a capitalist economy nor a democracy anymore. That 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 level of economic inequality w- won't support those institutions. You'll have some kind of um, you, you'll have something else, right. uh, uh, and it will be worse and bad for everybody. And I think it was look, all human societies have some economic inequality. Our country has always had some economic inequality. But the amount of inequality that we have today and the trends are uh, terrifying and getting worse. And, and and it just became very clear that as, you know, that no one has a stake 
in a thriving uh, economy like a capitalist like me, <laughs> you know, because if people have no money, sure, who will buy our stuff? Right. And so that's kind of why I'm asking the question. I mean, is this you talk about it in your TED talk is not being based in morality. Yeah. So, I mean, it, is it simply self-preservation? Is it, is there more to it than that for you? Oh, that's a psychological question. Which is, I think you have to ask my mom that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that, there, of course, there's a moral dimension, which is that, you know, you don't, well, I, some people do, but I certainly don't want to live in a society where a few people win and everybody else loses. That Why? I've been, well, I've, you know, I've traveled to a lot of places. I've, I've spent years backpacking around the world and... In places where a few people have everything and most everybody else has nothing, uh, rich people live behind giant walls with with uh, broken bottles uh, cemented into the top of those waddle, walls, mm. so people can't climb over. And that's just not a that's not a great way to live. It's not a great way to raise a family. It's not a great society uh, in which to live. I, and you know, people are people are different. I, I want to live in a society where everybody it feels pretty good about living in the society and is thriving and happy and not thinking that they're looking for a way to bring out the pitchforks or the guillotines, which, which I want to get to in a second. And so, yeah. yeah, So, but you know, you mentioned your mom. I I wanted to ask you, your, your family was in manufacturing pillows. Uh, This is a company that you yourself are the CEO of. uh, We we, we recently sold it though. Oh, okay. All right. So that's uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. But did you consider yourself middle-class growing up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I grew up, uh, my, my parents were hippies, Mm. (laughs) beatniks. Uh, I was born in New York city and they were like poor hipsters in the day. And then we moved back from New York to Seattle where my dad had grown up and my dad went into the family business. But, and you know, of course that's a privileged position to start from, but it was a tiny, tiny business. And I grew up in a very, very middle-class neighborhood and went to public schools. And, um, and, you know, I grew up in the sort of quintessentially West coast middle-class neighborhood and environment. And so, uh, but you know, as, as I grew older and, you know, my brother and I went into the family business and we started to grow it, you know, over time we became more prosperous. And then, you know, I, as I became an entrepreneur and had some incredibly lucky breaks, I became, you know, I and, you know, my family became very wealthy. Right. Well, I, I guess just backing up to your childhood and sort of watching um, the, the, the world of manufacturing, that divide between worker and ownership. I, did, I wonder if that informed your current thinking and, and your politics in, in a particular way. Yeah, yeah, it did. So my dad, you know, my dad was a wonderful guy and a very, um, he was a good business person, but a very sort of thoughtful and civic person. And uh, I'll, I'll give you an example in my life of the difference between how business people used to think and how they think now. Hmm. So, you know, we have, we have normalized the idea that a CEO should make a thousand times as much as their typical worker, that this is perfectly appropriate um, and normal and nothing to worry about and a sign that 
the economy is booming. But that wasn't always the case. It wasn't all the, always the case. Right. And, and when I grew up in the family business, and it was growing very fast and we were doing super well, when I was in my early 20s, uh, I wanted to buy a car for myself. Uh, my, my, you know, my salary was low, and $20,000 or something like that in the day. Um, and I wanted to buy a sports car, and my dad forbid it. And he forbid it because uh, it would send a terrible signal to the people who worked in our factory mm. uh, about privilege and just in, in, inappropriateness. And he said to me, these people work as hard as you do, and they can't afford sports cars. Uh, and it n- makes me want to throw up mm. when I think about you rolling up in some fancy f- sports car and they, you know, they can't. It would never occur to the CEO of one of America's big corporations today to scale their uh, salary or their spending or their lifestyle uh, in a way which was appropriate or sympathetic to the lives that the people who work for, their, for them live. Or even to guide their children in a similar way. Yeah, or, 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 yeah much less to point out to their kids that, you know, folks are working super hard and, you know, and could never do that and that you're not different than them. You're not better than them. Uh, and that and that cultural change, I think, is, you know, it's 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 really pronounced and uh, is definitely one of the worst things that's happened to our country and our culture. And as you say, it it, it gained a lot of traction under Reagan. We're talking about trickle down theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the theory basically goes that. If a company is given more in tax breaks, they will invest more in workers' wages. And, and we know that that's almost never the case. But I'd love to hear why you think that is. Is it human nature? Is it simple greed? What's at work there? Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a very complicated thing. Uh, you know, uh, economies are very complicated, and there are a lot of dynamics at play, um, Competitive dynamics, network dynamics, uh, uh, norms, laws. But, you know, the whole sort of trickle-down economic policy framework is, you know, sort of rests upon an ideology, which we call neoliberalism. Right. And neoliberalism is a a set of beliefs which in turn, for instance, among them that the only purpose of the corporation is— to, is to give a return to shareholders right. and that the only reasonable definition of freedom is freedom from uh, constraint and that, uh, you know, people are only are, are paid what they're worth. Uh, and that 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 uh, ideology in turn is rests on something called neoclassical economics, which is sort of mid-century economic thinking about people being rational calculators of their self-interest this and the Adam economy Smith, being right? invisible hands. Equi- yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. Equilibrium and that, you know, a million acts of selfishness add up into a good and uh, just and prosperous economy. And So on paper, it sounds good. Yeah. It, it should it, so work. So it's an yeah. internally consistent theoretical and ideological framework. It just turns out to be objectively not true, that tax cuts for rich people never turn into jobs and increased wages for poor people. The, the, if people are not paid what they're worth, which is the conventional neoliberal, neoclassical idea, 
uh, that people that, that this idea of marginal utility and all this stuff that's just it's just objectively false it's nonsense people are paid what they negotiate and you know 50% of the corporations in America underperform and yet their executives are paid insane salaries uh, those those executives are not paid those insane salaries because they're worth it they're paid it because they negotiated it People do not earn this, uh, the minimum wage of $2.13 plus tips because uh, th- that's all they're worth. It's all the power that they have to command. Right. That's all that, that they can command. And, um, and, and I think that the only thing that forces business people to hire workers is when demand exceeds your capacity <laughs> to meet it. Without, you know, you have to hire people because if you didn't, you couldn't meet demand. And, um, you know, v- very few companies or executives pay their workers more um, because they can. They they pay them more because they have to. Mm-hmm. They, they have to because the workers will quit if they don't or... Um, you know, or the the law compels them to do it, and and that has to do with people being greedy to some to some extent. Uh, but it also has to do just with the competitive dynamics of competing in markets. I mean, if I'm in a in, a, in an industry, and we use this analogy often in 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 the pillow business, I'd be delighted to pay my workers fifteen dollars an hour, but I'll be out of business in fifteen minutes if my competitors only pay seven twenty five. This is why labor standards are so indispensable to high-functioning market economies because they solve the collective action problem uh, that you have if, if, you, if you don't have them, right? So, um, so anyway, that's... Yeah, and I, I do want to kind of talk about those dynamics uh, a little bit more in detail in a second, but I, I kind of want to see this play out in your mind, what you're warning about, which is the destruction of the middle class in this country and what that might look like in practical terms. Uh, are, are we talking people literally storming the streets in in your in your mind in this scenario well i mean it, you just it just th- th- there's there are no precedents in history where that doesn't happen eventually if you let a society get unequal enough you mentioned the french Re- yeah, revolution well, I mean, just yeah. you know you pick it right mm-hmm. eventually uh folks at the bottom get angry enough uh and uh you know um Things get unstable enough for really terrible, bad things to happen in human societies. And the thing is, is that, you know, there are 205 countries in the world, plus or minus, running a simultaneous experiment in how you create a stable, prosperous, and secure society. Uh, There are zero examples of stable, secure, and prosperous societies where a few people have everything and and everybody else has nothing. You know, you show me a high-functioning society, and I will show you a society that has mitigated uh, its inequality in a variety of ways. And, all, you know, all the places in the world where you'd want to move your family if all of a sudden you had to leave very quickly. <laughs> Norway, for example. <laughs> right. Yes, as these that keeps are, coming up as an example. These are high-tax, yeah. high-regulation socialist hellholes. <laughs> right? They're, they're, you know, nobody is uh, upping and moving to the Congo. Or Somalia. Uh, right. Or, you know... Dictatorship, 
Um, well, so but cycling back to the United yeah. States, you know, it seems like we've been through this cycle yeah. historically before uh, the, the Gilded Age, yes. uh, the 1920s, right. the run up to the Depression. Yeah. What in your mind makes it more urgent now? Well, I don't think it's more urgent now than it was at the at the ter- at the turn of, at, in 1929. Uh, but I do think we're at the we're at a very similar similar place. Um, I, I mean, what makes it more urgent now than it was 30 years ago is that economic inequality is much <laughs> is much worse than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Right. Um, but it's had, on par we, with what we saw in the late well, 19th century and in well, the 1920s. Running up, running up to the collapse in the Great Depression, right. we had economic inequality at the same level that we have today, plus or minus. I mean, and so um, that 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 trend and that pattern should be deeply worrying to people. And obviously, we went through a, a very difficult time and a terrible scare in 2007 and 2008. Uh, but the next downturn could be cataclysmic. And, um, and you know, like economies are not equilibrium systems. This is a, a very important thing to recognize. There's this embedded idea from neoclassical economics that the system is essentially inherently stable. And you that say that it's it's, it's exactly the opposite. unstable, right? And and that and that the booms and busts of an economy are not these unnatural, irregular things that happen. They're very much part. They're endogenous to the system. They are a thing that a, a, a complex adaptive system like an economy just naturally produce. And the more unequal you make the society, the 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 more essentially the more fragile they become. And the more dangerous and, and larger and more disruptive the downturns can be. And so, uh, uh, you know, a highly unequal society is a very fragile, uh, very vulnerable society. And a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a society with a really robust middle class is, is highly resilient. Uh, to shocks and the vagaries of the market. So Right, and that's part of uh, the solution, some of the solutions that you propose. And I want to talk about that in just a second. But first, I kind of want to get your take on Trump. And in, in through this lens, do you see Trump's presidency as a symptom of wealth yeah, inequality in this country? For sure. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Trump's u- almost unique weaknesses notwithstanding, right, the fact that he is clearly a, an incredibly stupid and incredibly narcissistic sure. and incredibly dysfunctional person. Uh, you could have imagined somebody with sort of more mental capacity in his position, but, but I, 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 I absolutely believe that the fundamental challenge in the United States today is the breakdown in social cohesion that we are witnessing that is a consequence of the immiseration, essentially, of most people over the last 30 or 40 years. The, the very clear, the, I think, the, the very clear sense that most people in the country have that the game is rigged and a few people are winning and basically everybody else is losing. And if you lean a little right, you blame immigrants sure. and um and globalization, and if you lean a little left, you blame corporations and probably globalization too. Um, and the thing is, is that they're both, uh, and you believe that the system is captured by elites, and and both people are largely correct. That it's these these things are both true, and Trump simply was 
uh, better able to capture that zeitgeist than um, the neoliberal Hillary Clinton, who couldn't get out of her own way when it came to talking to speaking to these issues and who, you know, who, who definitely was, if not personally part of the problem was from a legacy that created these problems. I had a very interesting conversation recently with a, with a marvelous uh, comic uh, who we're doing a little bit of work with named Trey Crowder, who, who grew up a poor kid in Tennessee or something like that. And, you know, his entire community voted for Trump, which he found uh, deeply troubling. But you have to remember that it was Hillary Clinton's husband, Bill, who passed NAFTA that basically let, created the circumstances that led all the companies that used to that used to um, uh, provide the work in that region to move to Mexico. <laughs> and, and, you know, that sort of, you know, pro-globalist, neoliberal, tra- free trade is good and good for everyone nonsense that people on the left and right uh, advocated for is why those people didn't trust her. <laughs> right. They're like, wouldn't your husband the one that Right. Took all our jobs to Mexico and you're going to help me how? Like, right. <laughs> you know, well, like, yeah, I mean, we've, so, we've seen these trends yeah. eviscerate, uh, right. particularly the working class, right. the manufacturing Absolutely. working class. Yeah. Um, but and, and, you know, like if, if we're being I'm a Democrat, if we Democrats are being honest, then we have we have we own that, too. <laughs> and so neoliberalism, which is this. This sort of blind faith in markets, the idea that trade is always good, that the purpose of the corporation is to maximize shareholder value, you know, that, you know, these ideas infect the left and the right or have traditionally. And, you know, like another great example, as you must know, that I'm part of a little gang that led the whole $15 minimum wage fight for 15 thing. So we... We started. I made the first presentation on on fifteen dollar minimum wage in November of two thousand twelve. I think it took five years for Democrats in the Senate to endorse that idea. Well, there there are government correctives, and you know, this all gets back to this idea that you talk about with middle out economics, and you say the way to grow economies is to invest resources in things that support the middle class, Um, but. You're driving at what I think is is a unique and interesting philosophy that you and Eric Liu uh, fleshed out yeah. in your book, Gardens of Democracy, which is moving away from this mechanized binary thinking that yeah. is very outdated. Uh, taxation is always bad. Regulation is always yeah. bad. So in your mind, how do we evolve past that thinking as as a country, as an economy, as a body politic? Yeah, well, I mean, it, 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 that's sadly that that's a long story. Uh, if it was easy, we would have gotten there. But I, I do think that, you know, the first uh, first step is just conceptualizing the problem in the right way and understanding the economy as an ecosystem. So, so if the economy is this mechanistic thing that neoclassical economics describes, then it, it's plausible that uh, if one thing goes up, another thing goes down, sort of like a car engine. Right. That's a closed system is it when you when the car goes, it uses up gas. But if it's ecosystemic and by the you know, to be clear, uh, economy is an ecosystem in in a robust way. It's just like a natural ecosystem. Claiming 
for instance, that raising wages will uh, kill jobs is as ludicrous as claiming that if plants grow, animals shrink. Mm. Right? Like if you see it ecosystemically, this is this it's absurd. H- how could it be that if wages grow, jobs will shrink when essentially bi- businesses subsist on eat essentially the wages of workers and the more they eat the bigger they get right the fundamental feedback loop in a market economy is the feedback loop between customers and businesses which is why raising wages is the surest and best way to generate the demand that job growth comes from (laughs) and um and so so under and, and 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 that perspective we Call. I mean, we characterize as middle-out economics to, tri- to to contrast it with trickle-down economics. And, and trickle-down economics really is best understood as three basic claims that tax cuts for rich people create growth, that deregulation for powerful people create growth, and that, you know, we should suppress wages for everybody else. And those are all binaries. Y- y- yeah, that, you know, uh, that raising wages kills jobs. And and that claim has been made relentlessly for 30, 40 years. It is plausible because it, 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 if you look at it just from the micro perspective, right, if you are an individual business and you have to raise wages, well, then you may be forced to lay people off. But it doesn't, it doesn't account for the macro effect, which right. is if everybody earns more, then every business will have more demand and no one will be differentially disadvantaged and everybody will have to pay less tax because there won't be food stamps for everybody, right? Like it, it, it's quite simple. And so um, getting people to think about these things in a different way is, you know, is the starting point. But and- you have a... And government has a role to play in that. And they're certainly very recalcitrant about the sorts of things that you're talking about, particularly right now with this Republican uh, Yeah, well, I mean, government government always has a role to play. But, I mean, how would you ply, for example, or is it even possible to ply uh, a a Congress that is made up of the people who are are in it right now who are so against the ideas that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, that's a political question. And uh, I think that all great – you know, at Civic Ventures, my, my little gang, we have a theory of change, which is that all great change starts locally and eventually catalyzes national action. And so forget about Congress. Forget about it. it, 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 it certainly in this cycle, there's, there's, no, there's no reasonable possibility that they'll do anything useful. But in every town and city and state in this country— these narratives and policies can be advanced. And raising the minimum wage in your tiny town somewhere, if it can be done, represents another proof that when you raise wages, it does not kill jobs. And, and in aggregate, those, those small local actions will eventually precipitate national action. Since you bring that up, I do want to talk about Seattle yeah. um, to just kind of get your, your feeling uh, around what's happening here, yeah. because there's a good deal of insecurity here right now. Uh, rising rents are driving a lot of people out of the city. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a worry that the city is going the same direction that San Francisco yeah. and New York went, uh, two cities I actually used to live in when they had a thriving middle class, and now it's vanishing. Yeah. Um, and the $15 minimum wage, which you advocated for, uh, is law. 
But I don't know. Is it helping the middle class stay in the city? What what in your mind else can be done to preserve the middle class in Seattle? Yeah. So so if you you just have to go a lot farther. So so the fifteen dollar minimum wage seemed like the craziest, boldest idea anyone had ever posited in the history of economics when we first started talking about it. it that people thought we had lost our minds. But the minimum wage would be $30 today if it attracted the wages of the top 1%. It'd be $20 today if it attracted productivity gains. $15 is a very conservative, uh, timid step <laughs> towards fixing this problem. And we have to go way, way, way farther. Let me just dimensionalize this for you in another way at the, at the macro level. So, sure. so if you really want to fix this problem, it's a problem at the scale of about $2 trillion per year. Um, if, you, if you sort of analyze the way in which income and wealth flows in the country, $2 trillion more goes into the coffers of corporations and the pockets of the top 1% than went 30 or 40 years ago. And so if you want to rebuild the middle class, you have to get that $2 trillion back from the top 1% and get it to people in the... In it's wealth the, redistribution it, it, in some way. I don't call it... I don't think it's redistribution. I think it's pre-distribution. I think it's, uh, the, the redistribution gives you the sense that word implies that we're taking it from the deserving and giving it to the undeserving. And George Lakoff would be very upset <laughs> yeah, with me yeah, for, just, this for having said absurd, that. This is just absurd, right? Yeah. Like we, we, we need to more fairly um, split up the value created by our society. You have to go way farther than a $15 minimum wage if you want to bring back the middle class particularly in fast-growing cities like Seattle. And, yeah. and, and places like Seattle and San Francisco and New York and L.A. are – so the, this is a particular problem that you have in, in any domain with exponential growth, right? Like our Seattle is just growing super fast, and it turns out to be far easier – for people to drive into Seattle and decide that they've moved here than it is to build apartments or condos or houses for them, <laughs> right? Like one is super easy to do and another is really hard to do. And so, and by the way, Seattle, the density in Seattle is growing faster than any major city in the country. I think as, as poorly as we're dealing with this problem, we're dealing with it better with it, I think better than any other city, any other fast growing city in the country. But you know, this imbalance between the number of people who want to live in the city and the number of places to live in the city is just is this is the natural consequence of a super dynamic economy. And it, you know, I, I like to think of it at least as a high quality problem. Cities are either shrinking or they're growing. If they're if they're growing, you have one set of problems. If they're shrinking, you have another terrible set of problems, Detroit, obviously. Right, yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, uh, but but, uh, you know, I, we don't have. We do not have an, a, a housing affordability problem in our society. We have a, an income problem in our society. If the middle class incomes uh, had tracked 
productivity gains, the 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 median family income wouldn't be fifty two thousand or fifty four thousand dollars a year today. It would be seventy five or eighty thousand dollars a year today, and then everybody could afford housing a lot more successfully. So right. Well, how so then? How do you incentivize? businesses to pay workers a living wage. I mean, you use Henry Ford as a model. Uh, He introduced the $5 a day uh, for workers. That was twice what people were making at the time. Uh, He is credited with helping create the middle class in the country, uh, along with, I should stress, unions. Um, What would you say, for example, to the Walton family? They're the largest employer in America to get them to pay their workers more at Walmart. Um, What I would say to them is, so, so just to be clear, I allow for the possibility that there are incentives which would encourage businesses to pay workers more, uh, but I, I do not believe that that's the way you solve this problem. You pass laws and standards which require people. So, okay, so it's coercion. <laughs> to, uh, yeah. 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 I, I, the, 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 so here's the thing is that there are, you know, among 100 business people, there there are 33 of them probably who would do it just because it's the right thing to do. But there are 33 out of that 100 who are far more predatory and aren't going to do anything they don't have to do. And the problem is, is that the other 66 of them have to compete with that, right? And and as I said earlier, if my competitors pay $7.25 an hour, I'll go out of business if I pay all my workers $15 an hour. So you have to set standards which eliminate the collective action problem that a market economy really is. And so... What I would say to the Walton family is we're going to pass laws that require you to pay an entry-level worker $20 an hour. We're going to require you to offer them full-time employment if they want it. We're going to require you to pay them overtime. We're going to require you uh, to, uh, to give them health care and three weeks of paid vacation and paid family leave and sick days. Um, and we're going to require all of your competitors to do that, too. And in order to do that, you have to put people in office yeah, who have the political have will to, to do that. You have to change laws. Right. And, and when you change laws, you change norms. And when you change norms, you change laws. Uh, and, and, and that's the ecosystem. And that is the about. ecosystem, right? Yeah. You know, there's, there's no earthly reason why Walmart couldn't pay all their workers a living wage. They are, the, you know, the company earns uh, $25 billion pre-tax a year. They could easily take $10 billion of that and pay their workers more. Yeah. Uh, they would still be a very profitable company. You've said that the most insidious thing about trickle-down isn't the claim that the rich getting richer helps everyone. It's that the poor getting poorer hurts the economy. And so— I, Not I wanna, quite. Not quite. Okay. Well, Not quite. Then, then help, yeah, me, yeah, help yeah. me get that right. Yeah. So, 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 so the standard formulation of trickle-down economics is that if you make the rich richer, that's good for the economy. Like when, when you read— that, that, that when you when you open the paper and somebody has become a billionaire, our instinct as a society is to say, oh, my gosh, the economy is booming. That's an unalloyed good. <laughs> right? Right, right. The insidious part about trickle down economics is believing that when poor people get richer, that threatens the economy. That's OK. Bad for the economy. Well, th- thank you for helping that, me that, 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 and, rephrase and that. That's the essential argument of trickle down economics. It's the unspoken argument. It's. It's what you're saying when you say raising wages kills jobs. Okay. Right? That that making poor people richer will somehow harm them and harm the, the overall economy, which is just an absurd lie. 
So then what do you make of the idea of a universal basic income? I mean, it's been talked about in this country going back to Thomas Paine. Yep. Uh, MLK was an advocate of it. Uh, Nick Casella uh, recently wrote about it on the uh, the Civic Skunk Works blog, the, the blog for your think tank, Civic Ventures. Uh, what do you make of a universal basic income? I, 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 I'm, not a, I'm not a fan. Uh, and I'm not a fan because I'm a huge believer in capitalism. And because I believe that... Uh, Tell you what, when the minimum wage is $25 an hour, when every single worker in America is guaranteed three weeks of paid vacation a year, when every single but every single worker gets, uh, you know, sick days and paid family leave, and we have uh, a health care system that delivers affordable, high-quality health care to everyone, uh, and when we enact... For instance, a basic jobs guarantee where if you're if 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 you lose your job, uh, we collectively find a way to employ you and retrain you. When we do all those things, then let's talk about guaranteed basic income. Because if we do if we do all those things, and those things are easily within the scope the scope of uh, re- realism and reality today, we won't need a guaranteed basic income <laughs> mm-hmm. because every everybody in America with a job will earn enough to lead a dignified, secure, and stable life, and, and it'll be all good. And, and I, I, I am not—I know a lot of people um, from the technology business are these sort of uh, robot pessimists that all the jobs are going to go away and blah, 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 blah. I totally—I just—I totally reject that. I think, I think uh, that, that, that we will see disruptions— in our economy, as we have before, and you're an advocate of disruption. Uh, yeah, but we need to be as committed to helping people through those disruptions as we are to the disruptions themselves. And in a world where the minimum standard for operating a company is that you pay your workers enough for them to lead stable, secure, and dignified lives, m- managing through those disruptions will be much easier. Manufacturing is never coming back to the United States like it was, and a lot of that has to do with robotics. A lot of it has to do with outsourcing. Um, uh, but uh, And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the, the structure of the economy is changing from an economy focused on things to, a, to an economy focused on services. Sure, right? sure. This is, this is how economies advance. Or at this point, a lot of people talk about it like a gig economy. And I, I, I'm wondering, do you see a, you're a future looking person? Is there a current or even future industry that you would see that would uh, dramatically help mitigate the problem of income equality in this country? An industry? Industries? No, 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 no. Our problem, and this is, this is an incredibly corrosive idea, which is that the good jobs went away and we have to bring the good jobs back. That is a lie. The, the, the assembly line manufacturing job of the 1950s wasn't a good job until unions required companies to pay people enough so that all of a sudden they were good jobs. Like the, the 1960s middle class auto worker didn't create more value than a Starbucks barista or a person that works at McDonald's. The, the, the company they worked for wasn't larger, more profitable. The, the difference is that those folks in the 60s had a union. They had power. They negotiated a, a, a relationship with their employer that fairly split the value created by that enterprise. Uh, our problem isn't that we don't have good jobs. Our problem is that the jobs that we have don't pay enough. 
We don't have to get new industries. We have to require the current industries to pay people enough to, 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 to lead dignified lives. So, again, I'm a hardcore capitalist. But you cannot both believe in capitalism and also simultaneously believe that the whole system will crumble if capitalists are required to pay people enough to live. Like, choose. Either the Bernie Sanders socialist people are right and we should nationalize everything, or capitalism is a good system. If it's a good system, then capitalists can afford to pay people enough to lead dignified lives. Full stop. And here's the thing. McDonald's may not be able to figure out a way to make hamburgers and pay people a dignified uh, living. But uh, here's what I can guarantee you about capitalism is if McDonald's goes bankrupt, we will not run out of hamburgers. Someone will figure out how to make hamburgers that are fantastic and, and pay people enough to, to live. And, and so well, they've done it in California. It's in and out Burger. And we're doing it. They, yeah, exactly. They, they and we're doing it in Seattle, wage. right? Like if you work at McDonald's in the city of Seattle today, you make $15 an hour. Right. In Alabama, you make seven twenty-five. Somehow all the McDonald's didn't go out of business. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so, so anyway, I just, uh, th- but this, this idea uh, is so corrosive and is so broadly accepted that somehow the, the better industries have to come back. We, we go, the thing about our economy is we have plenty of jobs. Unemployment is like 4%. The problem is, is that there are 40% of those jobs that pay exploitive wages. These are parasite industries, right? These giant service industries that we have given a free pass to. You know, like I go in the Walgreens, I buy stuff from the Walgreens, the problem is, is that none of the people who work in that store in the Walgreens can, can afford to buy any of the stuff that my companies make. <laughs> and my employees pay taxes into the system, right, because I pay them well. But the Walgreens people need food stamps and government benefits that my employees pay for, right? Like, it, it's, it's pure, straight-up free riderism, parasitism. And... There is no earthly reason why Walgreens cannot afford to pay all those workers enough so they don't need food stamps <laughs> and they and they earn enough so that they can pay taxes into the system. We don't need new industries. So I will just leave it uh, here because this is a show uh, for the indivisible community, yeah. a, a grassroots uh, community. I'm wondering how you see the role of grassroots activism, uh, specifically when it comes to combating things like income inequality? You know, I think it starts with ideas and it starts with knowing what the enemy is. And the enemy is, in my opinion, <laughs> trickle-down economics. These three claims that tax cuts for rich people create growth, the deregulation for powerful people creates growth, and wage suppression for everybody else creates growth. Those ideas are lies. And as a grassroots activist, we need to fight those lies and the people who carry those lies everywhere. And, and the thing to remember is that these claims that raising wages kills jobs, for instance, are not made because they are true. They're made because they're the most effective narrative ever devised to keep wages low and profits high. That claim is an intimidation tactic masquerading as economic theory. It's a negotiating strategy. It's the oldest trick in the businessman's wage suppression handbook. You ask for a raise, I threaten to fire you. That claim that 
Paul Ryan makes that raising wages kills jobs, that just saves business people from having to have the pesky one-on-one conversations with their employer, employees, right? And, and so as activists, as um, engaged political actors, we need to fight those ideas and ridicule and shame the people who carry them and, and force them uh, confront, you know, just confront those lies everywhere and make it painful to say them. And vote them out. And vote them out. Right. Well, Nick Hanauer, it's been a real pleasure. I, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Man. Super fun. Thank you for having me. And so because this week has been a it's been a challenging one uh, with the government shutdown ending without a deal on DACA, I figured we could use a quick dose of good news because despite what happened this week in Congress, there were still a couple of very bright spots that bear mentioning. First, to the state of Pennsylvania, where the Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down districts that were gerrymandered by Republicans. The state government now has until February 15th to drop new districts, which probably won't happen because the legislature is controlled by Republicans while the governor is a Democrat. And if and when they fail to meet the deadline, the districts will be redrawn by the Supreme Court, which is, what do you know, majority Democrat. This is likely to have huge consequences on the 2018 election, far more even than the North Carolina gerrymandering ruling because Pennsylvania was one of the states that has been most gerrymandered in favor of Republicans. Also, in another positive bellwether for the race to flip the House this year, a Democrat won in a state Senate special election in Wisconsin for a district that had gone for Republican by 26 points the last time around. (laughs) Yeah. GOP strategists are not so quietly panicking over that one. And finally, millions of people took to the streets on Saturday across the country to take part in the Women's March 2.0. Now, we don't have official numbers on the Seattle March other than a very nebulous tens of thousands, uh, but we do know that over half a million people marched in Los Angeles, and the National Mall in D.C. was more crowded than, well, than Trump's inauguration. It burns, doesn't it? Oh, and speaking of the inauguration, another quick spot of good news. Federal prosecutors have agreed to drop most of the charges against the inauguration protesters. Anyway, Sunday's turnout for the Women's March in Seattle was tremendous. People were really revved up. Uh, The signs that people made were fantastic, often hilarious. It didn't rain all that much. And uh, speaking for myself, I really needed that march. It was great to be out among all you fine people and uh, very reassuring to know that people are, yep, still fired up and ready to go. And so we will close this week with some voices from the march in Seattle. First, I wanted to get some reflections from people on last year's March and how they are feeling a year later. I think that last year, everything and everyone was new. And it was so fulfilling last year to be able to finally be able to have a voice and start feeling like we're getting somewhere with our own agendas. And this year, it feels like we're in this for the long haul and we're not going to we're not going to ever stop. Uh, This is awesome. I love how many people came out a year later here in Seattle. Um, And it's also really wonderful to see all these friends that we've made over the past year in the resistance. We were blown away. We expected it to be much smaller than it ultimately was. But it was certainly motivating and uh, proud to have been part of it. Happy to be here again. 
I started my journey uh, in the March last year where I felt overwhelmed by all the positive response and how I was one of so many people that was against Trump and I was crying. I was so overwhelmed. And this year I've learned so much and now I want to be part of Indivisible or I am part of Indivisible and I want to represent us and continue all the actions. And so this is just a way to show up and reflect on all the work that we're doing every single day. Last year gave me hope. And this year, uh, the messages were still here. We haven't gotten tired. We've been uh, working in the resistance for 12 months now, and we're still here. And we're waiting for uh, 2018 elections to come along and make a change. Um, the last year has been really introspection, looking internally, looking at, okay, I don't like what I'm seeing, what can I do about it? Um, how do I make my child believe that everything's going to be okay? Because I told her so many times during the entire voting process, don't worry, he's not going to become president. So as we're sitting there at the couch and it's becoming reality and she's looking at me and going, wait a minute, what just happened? You said this couldn't happen. I'm trying to figure out, okay, now what do we do? That it, Now that it has, what do we do? to combat it. So yeah, that's what we're doing here. We're resisting. And what? I've seriously considered in the last year um, running for politics, getting involved, getting engaged. So that's what I'm doing. In order that we heard from Ali Hannigan, Kayla Hill, Steve Thompson, Susan Appleton, Roger Ledbetter, and Maria Ochoa, all of whom are Indivisible members. I also asked Maria's daughter, Bella Sinavia, about her thoughts on the Women's March. Well, I think that women can do the same thing that men can, no matter what. I next spoke with Mary Hankey. Now, you may have seen her photo going around social media. She was dressed in purple with yellow glasses, and she had a great sign, which I asked her about. Well, it's pretty self-explanatory. I'm too old to learn Russian. Impeach the bastard. And I'm out today because democracy is not a spectator sport. And I think too many people thought that a year ago, and that's why we are where we are today. And if there's one good thing about Trump's election is I think he woke up a lot of people and got a lot of people involved. I talked next with Kelly Hannigan. She is the daughter of Ellie Hannigan. And it was pretty remarkable to see Kelly out there. Uh, those of you who were at the Obamacare rally at Congressman Dave Reichert's headquarters in Issaquah last year may remember Kelly. Uh, she was in a wheelchair and she was very ill at the time. And she spoke out on behalf of saving the ACA. It is now a year later, and I asked Kelly how she was feeling. I'm doing a whole lot better. I'm no longer in a wheelchair, which is awesome. I'm still ill, but um, I'm living my life now and going to school and hopefully getting a job soon. So things are a lot better. So what brought you out here today? Uh, to march for the rights that so many women have fought for before and to fight for everyone who is marginalized and who is taken advantage of by Trump's administration and to uh, elicit change for future generations and my generation. And finally, I spoke with founder and leader of Indivisible Washington's 8th District, Chris Petzold, about what she was feeling. I think I feel hope and I feel pride in everything that we've done this year. I feel like all of the energy that we've gathered is going to turn into some good results uh, in the midterms. And I'm very excited to make that happen. Are you fired up? Ready to go. 
And that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, for more information about the show, do head over to indivisiblepodcast.org and subscribe while you're there to get the show delivered to your email inbox. And speaking of email, the address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thank you again to my guest, Nick Hanauer. Special thanks go out to Stephanie Urban, Chris Petzold, and Ellie Hannigan. And thanks as always to you for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.